Breaking news at this hour. Scientists say paramedics give less pain medication to minorities. Is this another example of woke liberals taking away your pain relief? No. No, it's not. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And today we have Dr. Jamie Kennel from Oregon is going to tell us about uh, a study. He just won the Scientific Research Award at EMS World. Um, we're really excited to talk to him. We're really excited to get some of this information. So, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, for the uninitiated, give us a little bit of your background and uh, what your research was uh, focused on finding. Yeah. So, uh, I'm a paramedic first. I think that's important to say. Uh, I'm interested in um, doing uh, EMS research um, as a paramedic rather than having uh, oftentimes physicians that um, don't have a lot of field knowledge um, doing work in our space. So, um, first and foremost, I'm a medic. I have field experience working as an ALS transport provider. Uh, my doctorate training is in medical sociology, where my particular area of research is focused on how a patient's social characteristics may influence the quality of, of health care that they receive specifically in emergency medical services. Um, so the uh, research that we're talking about, I think primarily today is around um, how a patient's race influences the quality of EMS treatment around traumatic injuries. And we use traumatic injuries and pain medication as one context area to study um, the presence of racial disparities, the severity, what they look like. So hopefully we can get to a point where we can start talking about interventions and mitigation strategies. So when you started looking into this research topic, did you want to find like unconscious biases that providers have? Was that the goal? Yeah. So unconscious biases is, is an interesting uh, and a common entry into this space. But uh, what I really wanted to find, um, not so much uh, the study isn't really about attitudes or the why yet, but it was asking more of the question of, does this happen in EMS? There's decades of high-level scholarly work in many other areas of medicine that have shown that there is a difference in the quality of treatment. And to be more specific, there's a substandard of treatment in many other areas of medicine for racial minorities, including in the emergency department. Uh, but there was very few studies at the time that looked at uh, does this phenomenon take place in EMS? So this first study was saying, is it here? Is it real? How big is it? How severe is it? Then the next set of studies, whether by me or other scholars, is then hopefully going to be able to focus on, okay, we know it's real. We know it's, we know it's this big. Now, why does it happen? Is it because of implicit bias or unconscious bias? Or is it because a number, there's a number of other um, uh, mechanisms that have been discussed and proposed, and many of them that have some evidence behind them, that it's not unconscious bias, but it's things like a belief that patients of different races are biologically different um, in meaningful ways that may justify difference in treatment. These are all false. Um, this is an incorrect understanding of race as a biological construct instead of a social one. So I build out on that. What do you what do you mean with people with their their biases toward race? I, is the assumption, I guess, that say a black person might have a higher pain tolerance than a white person? Is that or or a, or a lower pain tolerance? Yeah. Is that kind of the assumption? 
Yep. So there's a great study. Yes, is the short answer. And to, to back it up with some evidence, there's a great study uh, out of Virginia Medical School um, just a couple years ago that looked at um, proven false uh, understanding about physiology of patients of different race. And they asked medical students, first year and second medical students, if they believed that these physical traits about race were true. And a, a embarrassingly high percentage, often around 40% of medical students wow. said things like, yes, black patients' skin is thicker than white patients. Their blood coagulates faster. They have fewer pain receptors. Therefore, they're more tolerant of pain. And so if, if we have these incorrect ideas that people that are of different races are biologically different, that may be one of the mechanisms that lead us to believe treating them differently. And we could argue, I think, for a while, if is that unconscious. In many ways, that's a very conscious uh, belief that there's biological differences between us that are meaningful. Sure. And I, I can say anecdotally, I, I certainly in the field and Dan, Danny, you, you can jump in on this, too. I've heard stories, you know, I feel like that's something that I was taught in medic school, like I, I distinctly remember hearing preceptors and field training officers like that explaining that, like you have to approach a black person's skin from a different angle with an IV catheter because the, the skin might be yep, harder to penetrate. Totally false. I, I never yep, heard totally. that, but I'm not surprised. I mean, and I've, yeah. I've seen this anecdotally in my own practice in an urban area where people with traumatic injuries don't get pain management for a variety of reasons and none of them are good to be honest yep yep we do a terrible job of it in the field in general pain management in general that needs to be improved but not I, of course wasn't yeah. really the focus <laughs> we, of my we work. are you're right we are generally yeah. bad at, at pain management writ large um i i think a lot of that is uh that that's a lot of the uh you know not my jobism that i think we we kind of run into yep. in the field so it, i'm interested was there any real information or data before you chose this study design? Um, because I, I I looked and I'll admit it was sort of a cursory look. Um, I didn't find a lot. I did find things, you know, better ways to manage pain, but I didn't find a lot on racial disparities. Did you not see the own data on your side and wanted to pursue it more? Is that kind of how this whole thing started? It is. I saw a lot of data uh, from emergency department studies that were structured very similarly. And so I, I wanted to make sure that mine was uh, similar so that we could have some benchmarking. There were, to be fair, there were two other studies that were done uh, around racial disparities and pain in particular. Uh, one out of Contra Costa County, California, and I think it was uh, Hughes was the original author uh, that did find disparities. There were some there's some methodological challenges with the work they did um, there. And then there was a um, retrospective nationwide study um, done with NEMSIS data uh, that did find disparities as well, but it was very just descriptive in nature. Um, uh, so there was some, I would say, preliminary evidence for this, but nobody had done a more rigorous dive into the work. So it was, it's, it's, it was begging to be done and, and really still is. I, I'm, I, I gotta say, I, I'm shocked that this wasn't something that was actually researched, um, scientifically up until recently. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and, and something that we've talked about on the show a lot and something that Danny and I certainly appreciate is the growth of medicine and medical research over the past 20 years. Um, I think certainly we're starting to find things that we hadn't thought about 
or things that we had sort of talked about anecdotally. It didn't have any backing in the data. So it's very encouraging for, for me, I can say, when I see studies like this come out. Um, I can tell you, I hadn't heard of the study until EMS World, which for me, that was very frustrating because I feel like this should have gotten a lot more traction. Um, but I, I, again, yeah. congratulations on the award. I'm really glad that this is out, and I hope that this gets out to, to more people so we can start kind of changing our practice. Um, so let's dive into the yeah, study a little you. bit. Um, you worked in a retrospective analysis. It uh, looks like you looked at a little over 25,000 people, close to 26,000 people. So you had a really good end for this. Um, do you feel that there was any, uh, I guess, risk or compromise doing a retrospective analysis? Because I think that's the, that's the first thing that people are going to say is like, well, yeah, things were like that in 2015 because your study ranged from 2015 to 2017. So I, I'm, I'm interested. Do you think people will say like, well, that was, you know, seven years ago and it's retrospective. Do you think that that has any effect on the study? Do you think things have changed at all? Or what do you hope to find in further research from that? Yeah, it's always a good question. And there, there certainly are limitations when you do retrospective work. Um, uh, to answer the question, I think the answer is no, in that uh, I don't think things have changed, um, because I think the, the nature of the problem that we're looking at is really kind of racism overall. and racism In America? Impact what? Of, no. Of medicine. Can you, no. I know, I know. I hope you were sitting down. Uh, and so, you know, has that changed in the last few years? We could probably argue yes, and it, maybe it's gotten worse. Um so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, I don't think there's meaningful change. And the way the study's done, it, it's such a large data set that um, it's unlikely that um, from a more of a public health level of analysis, if that's going to have large measures of change over short periods of time. Sure. And certainly something that we've discussed many times is if when you look at one EMS system, you've looked at one EMS system. So it's important to note that this is out of Oregon specifically. This doesn't necessarily talk about other states. This has to be researched in other states and in the country as a whole, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, with an N of specifically you had 25,732, I think that's that's a sufficient size. And I think it's something that's easily replicatable. Yes. Yes, and it and it has been replicated since, uh, and working on several projects that are also um, taking it one step further. Because uh, some of the, and we can table this for later, but some of the logical critiques of this is, uh, which may be true, which we're trying to quantify, which may be, uh, well, I offered pain medications, but racial minorities are less likely to accept them, and so there's a higher refusal rate of pain medications in particular. And I'm, I'm um, sure that's so documented. <laughs> right, right. That's exactly the challenge, right? Because our, our system of thinking about refusals is refusals for an entire call, not refusals for an, a single intervention. Right. Um, and so the documentation of those is pretty limited. However, uh, some work that um, uh, Rimley Crow and Brent Myers and I and Henry Wang are doing uh, that's currently in review uh, at Annals is um, looking at uh, the ESO data set, so it's more of a national data set, something like 2,000 agencies involved, um, with hospital data appended to it, where we're looking at confirmed long bone fractures in the hospital, looking back at the EMS record to see, are there racial disparities in the pain treatment of folks that have confirmed long bone fractures? So that part's, uh, I think, interesting on its own, but I think the most interesting part is we're looking then um, doing some natural language searching and then some really manual chart reviews and reading narratives of folks that have any sort of indication of refusing pain meds. 
And, you know, between you and I and your podcast listeners, uh, one of the teases that is going to come out of this once it's published is that the refusal rate is actually higher among white folks. And so <laughs> hopefully dispelling this myth that um, it's offered and refused more often to racial minorities. Is I, isn't that always the way, like, that's what we're finding, I think, in almost every study that's coming out where it's, it's a bunch of white people being like, nah, nah, it's them, but it's actually us. I feel like so I, I'm shocked. Yep. I'm, I'm yep. shocked. It's just a lot of it just, it yep. feels like, pro- like projection at some point where it's like, I'm not the problem. Mm-mm, not me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is exactly the complexity of the challenge. Do you, do you think we're just coming up on, you know, these old cultural and racial tropes that we're seeing that, you know, drug seeking, I've heard people say, well, I didn't get pain management because it was drug seeking behavior or they've got a history or known well to EMS. That's, that's another one uh, that you get. Do you think, do you think it's just, is it just a training gap? Is it a cultural gap or is it just plain racism? Yeah. I think all of that is involved. (laughs) Yes is the answer. Yeah. Which is a very boring podcast, right? Um, So yes is the answer. Um, But, you know, having a bigger view of racism, racism affects all of those things. Our belief of who is drug seeking, our belief of, of who is looking for narcotics specifically influences that decision and what they look like and how they interact with us. Um, Importantly, I don't think this is, the intent of the EMS providers. I think this happens without their knowledge. I think they want to be, the vast majority of them want to be equitable care providers delivering high quality care to everybody. But they've never been presented with data to suggest that their their actions are different than their intent. And so we're in this phase where there's, and as I speak at conferences, much like today, there's this period of of transition where they go through these periods of of grief where they get their denial, their anger, and hopefully we can get on the backside to say, okay, I am a believer of evidence-based medicine, so I need to sit with this and see what's happening. Why am maybe I've got a a biological misunderstanding that's guiding my actions. Maybe, and certainly the evidence suggests other things like people that are different than me. I have a I'm a bad judge of their pain. They may express pain in ways that I think are not authentic, and I may sanction their treatment because of that. And then I think overall, as you've described, our our belief in pain management around an authentic, what we think is an authentic expression of pain um, needs to be questioned. And we need to be, I think, more forthcoming on pain is subjective. And you tell me you're in pain, I'm going to try to drive that to zero. And I think that's that's the point is we as an industry, we are really bad with pain management just writ large. I mean, I I can say I'm probably worse at it than I should be. And it's due to the the you know subjectivity of the pain scale. You know, if I have someone who tells yep. me their pain is a two, then I, you know, I I know that I will tend to default to think that the pain is tolerable. And, you know, I find the thought entering my mind like, well, I'm not gonna give you fentanyl if your pain is two. Like that's Tylenol pain. Right. You know what I mean? And I, I think that that's something that yep. a lot of providers fall into. And that might be that, you know, at the project that I'm at, I don't have the option of giving an NSAID. Um, you know, so di- different projects might have that availability, which might make life easier. But I, I can say that, that certainly in my experience, we've had people who have had a level of pain 
that we've uh, written off might not be the proper term, but I mean, we've certainly somewhat dis, you know, discarded. Well, and you know, yep. I, I, I think there's a, there's a point to defend there though. And I mean, for years, historically, we haven't been given good pain management options. Right. Uh, we don't have some of the things that other places do. Um, we don't have IV acetaminophen. Most of your paramedic programs around the country at the paramedic level, you get, a choice of morphine or fentanyl and that's it i mean a yep. lot of places don't have ketamine uh toradol is you know hitorolac is probably not able to out there to a lot of places um you know iv acetaminophen i hear all the time that's expensive but we don't have good options so we tend to husband that resource for the people that we feel that really really need it Right. And I think that's kind of the point right. that that Jamie is trying to get across. And Jamie, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth, but it, it feels like, you know, it, it, the more data that comes out, it seems to be like, just take patients seriously. Like I, I, I've noticed yep. this, this sort of trend over the years where it's like, if a patient tells you something, listen to them. And yep. it, it turns into this self-consuming cycle where if you have a patient who was in pain or is in pain and they're not listened to by healthcare providers, they will continue to not think that healthcare providers care about them. So, you know, That's you'll get right. to people who, you know, how, how many World War II veterans, Vietnam, well, I guess Vietnam War veterans now in 2022, do you run into and they're like, well, don't worry about it. I have a high threshold for pain. And it's because they haven't been listened yep. to by, you know, the VA or other medics or the hospitals or whatever. And it, it's interesting to me because it's something that we don't think about, I think, until maybe later or until we've had a, a run of patients, you know, over the course of a week that had some level of pain or that, or were just, you know, I don't know, annoyed with us Yeah, that they just didn't seek pain management. So, but I do want to get into some of the numbers here yep. because I, I'm, I'm super impressed. Uh, I, I get negatively imp impressed, I guess, uh, just with the numbers that you saw, because <laughs> it, this is the, the results of your data showed that a one fifth of Hispanic patients, 21%, uh, and then one third of black and Asian patients, 31 and 32% respectively, are undertreated for pain uh, compared to white people. And that is, yep. uh, that's that's too many. Not a trivial amount, you bet. Yeah, it's not like a slight finding. Yeah, yeah it's, absolutely. it's, it's I huge, don't... huge, huge numbers, um, which is, is very disconcerting for me to see. Yeah, and I want to, uh, you know, I want to talk about the details of the study, but I also uh, there's a risk um, in losing sight of the bigger picture. In that, this is not about pain management and the problems that we have with pain management. This right. is about treating people differently by race, based on their race, exactly. Um, yes. And the work, yes. yeah, the work that that I've done at um, uh, AMR, which is covers Multnomah County, the biggest area uh, service in Oregon. When we uh, looked at probably now a dozen different protocols, patient conditions, in every single one of them, there were there's a substandard of care for racial minority patients. So it's easy to get kind of wrapped into the, the opioid discussion and having the options, which is important, um, but it, it often distracts from the bigger issue here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if this is happening with pain management, which arguably is the one thing that paramedics actually do effectively and can do effectively, what's this doing for your CHF treatment? What's this going for asthma, for uh, allergic reactions? I mean, it, that's right. you know, that's the danger here. If, if we're doing this with something that we know works, what are we doing with the other stuff? 
Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, and again, don't let me take us down a rabbit hole, but one of the reasons that I studied, two reasons I studied pain management as the context for this was, one, it was benchmarked in the ED, and so there's some good studies to compare against, and these findings really relate to those well. But second is in areas of the protocol where there's large measures of discretion by the provider, no surprise, those are areas where we're likely to find larger measures of bias. So pain management Mm -hmm. is a great area to study for that because it's so subjective and the protocols are written around language like consider medicating. And unfortunately, many of our systems from a QI perspective, pain management is not something that the agency is demonstrating that they care about by not doing uh, QI on pain management charts. They'll do it on the sexy stuff, STEMIs and stroke, et cetera, but they're not talking to providers about, hey, how are you doing on pain management, even though it's the most common reasons people call EMS. So I, I do want to kind of build out on that a little bit, because um, I'm, I'm sure that that's not discussed as much as it should be, but I, I also don't want to focus too much on pain management. Um, as far as the, the actual bias is concerned, is this a... I'm trying to figure out how to properly ask this question because there's a, a good way to ask it and a bad way to ask it. Is this a failure of <laughs> is this a a failure of training or is it a uh, societal failure or is it kind of a mixture of both? Um, and then I I want to kind of get into what we can do to sort of uh, address these things. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, uh, and the answer is all the above, and it's complicated, right? Um, it's certainly. I think there is some uh, provider-level contribution to this problem, although I think it's probably small. I think the majority of the contribution is the the agencies are not paying attention, and the agencies play a role here in describing to the providers that work for them what's important to them. And so the things that the agencies neglect, like racial inequities, like pain management, sends a message to the crews of that's not important to us. What's important to us are our STEMI response times. Are we going to the right hospital? Our stroke response time. What's our door to balloon time? Um, Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, largely they're being motivated by their regulators, whether it's the county or the city that they work for, they are financially motivated in a certain direction. So until I think some of those motivations can change, uh, we're not going to see the needle move very much. So one example of, uh, I think, of that moving uh, was now five years ago. Uh, the folks at Fitch were a um, consulting for Multnomah County's RFP for their ambulance transport contract. And for the first time in the country, as far as I understand it, they built in health equity measures into the RFP that the transporting agency had to respond to, as well as building in clinical uh, quality measures instead of our over-dependence on response times. So now it sends the message to the agency that in many calls, it doesn't matter how fast we get there. What matters is the quality of care that happens when we're there by some really simplistic measures like do people with chest pain get aspirin? Uh, But also we need to start reporting on disparities in our care for these measures. Um, So now everybody can have kind of an awareness of what's happening and where. I'm I'm interested in the the response time feedback because that's something we've we've been kind of rallying against for a couple of years. But I also I I would imagine, um, and again this this is anecdotally, but I imagine response times might be longer 
for some of these patients as well, um, given the geography of where they're responding. Um, which is, I mean, it's a polite way of saying that I'm sure that people will respond to, you know, predominantly Asian, Hispanic, and Black areas maybe a little bit slower than they do to predominantly white areas, specifically the cities versus the suburbs. Um, again, yeah, it's an, it's anecdote. True, I have yeah. no data to back that up, but that's that that's the the kind of feeling that I get. But but that would back up yeah. the cultural biases and the things that we know exist. Right. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's been looked at in general. I haven't seen any specific studies lately, but the other piece that counters that is often in inner cities where transport times and response times are short. Uh, that's where most racial minorities live. Right. So even though they may be uh, slower to respond, uh, they're also much closer. Right. Yeah. So that's the thing is, and and Danny and I are, are in the suburbs in, uh, in central Jersey. So our response times are commonly, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, yeah, and and you know, city, and I guess that would be the variable in the city too, because if you're three minutes away from a call, you can take, you know, a minute or two to walk out to your truck, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, I, and I'm not asking you to to solve the problem, but if you had to suggest a <laughs> fix it right now, go. Um, if you had to suggest to an agency how to start reducing these implicit biases, what do you think would be a good first step? Yeah, uh, there's a handful of things. Um, uh, first, I think it, it needs to start at the very top, because as you guys know, if if your leadership and your supervisors don't believe this is real, uh, it will never change. Um, so I think part of that shift is moving from a culture, and I think I'm speaking your eyes' language, moving from a culture of being a public safety organization to a healthcare organization that shift has a lot of positive consequences to it um, around health equity work. And so start looking and treating and respecting your frontline folks as professional medical providers, um, not taxi drivers or public safety people. Um, so I think that will start to help. Then some of the details kind of at the next level, there's a handful of things. Um, some of the work that I've done with AMR to help them with this are looking at things, looking at some of the presumed mechanisms that we think like a uh, biological understanding of race that's false, but there's some other mechanisms like language barriers. Certainly folks that are, and the, the name for this is patients that are limited English proficiency or people that don't speak English. Right. They are predominantly going to be uh, Latinx or Asian immigrants. Um, and they're often also poor. So they're really vulnerable from a healthcare perspective. Um, doing work with AMR in Portland, one of the things we found is AMR has a interpreter line. Every rig has a cell phone on it. It's got a speed dial to a language interpreter, but the agency never looked at um, how often is it used? What's the quality of care that's being provided to LEP patients? Uh, and so when we started to look at it, we found of we get about 2% of all the calls in Portland are LEP patients. That is roughly a thousand patients um, over the course of the year. And only about 3% of the time did a crew use the official medical interpreter language line. The vast other, only half the time did they use any interpreter at all. But when they did use an interpreter, it was often a family member or a bystander, which is against policy. And they're also um, because not necessarily reliable. Yeah. And, exactly. all, and, and also, you got to watch talking to family, too, because they, they might 
kind of filter the the message or the information. Oh, man. That's yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of problems, which is exactly why it's not allowed in the hospital. It's not allowed in the emergency department. Um, so I think that's one small example of, well, of course, if we are on a, and literally when I would read these narratives, it would say patient doesn't speak English. Um, so just driving to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there was no care given and, you know, with the hopes that there's an interpreter at the hospital. So part of it is some really low level mechanical things to fix like that. And I can say one thing for providers is, you know, just little things like I, I can say I speak five sentences of Spanish uh, and it is bad Spanish with an affected Northeast accent. Uh, I'm bad at it. But <laughs> the thing is, I, I can get the point across to the patient like they understand that I'm speaking very bad, broken Spanish. But, you know, just asking, what's your name? Does anything hurt? Like those kind of things I found are are helpful. Now, you also have to learn to understand some things. But I mean, this is stuff that can that can happen in a week. You you can learn like little tidbits yep. over the course of a week. It's not it's not super difficult. Um, and I, as far as the interpreter line is concerned, I mean, Danny and I were looking at each other while you were talking about it. that. That sounds like something that would be a, a dream in the back of our trucks. Oh, home run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I and can say it, it doesn't have one. Yeah. Painful. And I mean, I, I can say it, in my experience, I, I recall I had a patient uh, when I was working in Philadelphia and the patient spoke Cantonese and the only interpreter we had spoke Mandarin, which was, yep. that was, that was a pretty fun day. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean they speak yeah. two languages in China? Um, so, I mean, it, you know, there, <laughs> there are, there are of course risks uh, and downfalls to things like that, but just taking that small step of being able to ask the patient like, Hey, what's going on today? Or even like learning to say in Spanish, do you speak English? Like habla inglés will get you, will go miles. There's plenty of people who are like, oh yeah, no, I speak English. I just didn't know that's what you're asking me. Yeah, absolutely. And it sends a signal to the patient that you care enough about me to take time to learn the language, even though it's, it's going to be terrible and it's going to be butchered, Mm -hmm. but you're trying. And it will be. It will be. I'm, I am bad yeah. at Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> My, Malo Spanish. So can attest. <laughs> so I want to, I want to ask you to kind of extrapolate this a little bit. There was something that came out, uh, looks like last week. Uh, this is from EMS one. It's written an article by Ed standard from the Hartford current. So Yale has found out that in the emergency department, there are delays that cause mistakes and deaths where people just essentially get backed up. Now, this is a lot of it is just, you know, volume and time. But I'm wondering if after you've gone through all your data and your studies, you maybe have thought about this later on. Do you think that EMS being, uh, forgive the term, but unimpressed by the patient's presentation, when they turn that patient over to the ED, do you think that that is something that causes further risk down the line? Oh, I like it. Um, uh, yes, I think in a variety of ways. Um, I think uh, at a at a high level, if we hover up to 30,000 feet, I think it's likely, I've not seen data on this, but there is other corollary data that suggests that there are some hospitals that are more affected by problems like this and some hospitals that provide a lower standard of care uh, than other hospitals. And no surprise, those hospitals also are predominantly providing care for racial minorities that provide a substandard of care. And likely, I think if we uh, extend that further, there are likely hospitals that have been unsuccessful at finding ways to manage the volume 
that's coming from their EMS system. So they're more likely to have backups at all times that are going to be disproportionately impacting racial minorities instead of the wealthy white private hospitals that often don't have this problem. I don't know if that's true in this in this article or not, but um, I could see that happening at a system level in various cities. Um, and then I think there's a, a second comment that comes to mind is, yes, I think there is a the concept of a diagnostic snowballing or diagnostic suggestion where an EMS crew member comes in and has diagnosed the patient and communicates that diagnosis to a nurse or to the physician. Um, that carries weight. And in order to get that changed mentally, that takes some energy and some um, evidence to support it might be different than what was described by the EMS crew. Um, in the cases of racial minorities, I think that, that diagnostic suggestion could very well downplay the severity of racial minorities, in this case, pain levels for traumatic injuries, which might cause them to be triaged into a waiting room or into the triage center of the ED instead of being directly admitted into a room. Um, so I think in those couple ways, I think um, this work could influence racial minorities disproportionately in those those challenges. I love the term diagnostic snowballing. I, I that's <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great. It's great. That's that's the favorite thing I've heard this entire time. I because I I think it's so true. Good. I think I think when you walk in and you say, oh, you know, uh, there's there's nothing wrong with this patient, then they're going to they're being you know, dramatic yeah. or any of the rolling your exactly. eyes or the body language that this isn't important buys them a spot on the wall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I could easily see that. Yeah. Um, I want to ask since you're down at a at EMS World, what kind of feedback has this uh this this study and this presentation gotten uh, amongst the thought leaders down there is that something that people are looking to build out? Yeah, uh, it's been it's been really welcoming uh, community from uh, a couple of circles. Uh, I think medical directors, especially medical directors that have public health backgrounds, really get it um, and are uh, curious about how to get it incorporated into their agency and their community. Um, researchers really appreciate it, and the Kind of the research group here it has a very strong kind of social justice um, angle so they're very interested in the work also uh, and then there's also uh, we just had a conversation with the gentleman um, who was so in the denial and anger phase and it was he was getting very emotional uh, as he was talking about the poster um, about uh, one of the works that we have here is also looking at the racial makeup of uh, textbook imagery in EMS textbooks. And lo and behold, um, white men are way more disproportionately represented as EMS providers, while racial minorities and women are more likely to be the patients. And so as we're looking to diversify the industry in our own training textbooks that are used nationally, we're not, racial minorities are not able to see themselves as the medical expert in these textbooks. Um, right. Anyhow, he was very upset that this was being pointed out, um, and and it shouldn't be. Um, so anyhow, a long conversation ensued. Well, and that's that's another, and again, that's a cultural thing that I think is happening specifically over the past, you know, I mean, six years. Um, yep. Which I mean, it's coded language, but you know, it, since the uh, the administration entered in 2017, um, um, because I feel like we get kind of accused of wokeism and things like that a whole lot, but. This, as far as that debate is concerned, if and, and I think this is the unconscious thing where if you don't see a group, then you don't necessarily tend to think of the group. 
and it's very it's very easy you know if you're if if i'm a white guy writing a textbook i'm going to write based on my lived experience i'm not necessarily going to write you know oh i i imagine uh a hispanic male in a city and just try and put myself in his world like i'm no i'm gonna write about you know a 50 year old white male who's got chest pain and that gets born out where you know when you look at ideal body weight is based on a 70 kilogram white man so even the you know the most simplistic basis of of healthcare is based upon just an assumption yeah yep absolutely so it's it it is a system that i think and i i wonder because i hate saying that it's on purpose um (laughs) but (laughs) i mean it it does kind of feel that way well yeah and i think you're right there and if you i mean if you study race and you study sociology you can see that there is a power hierarchy that is maintained um intentionally through actions like this um that it's not you know and i I don't think at the individual level like this gentleman he's not trying to maintain hierarchy that he's in power and others are below him um but it's really hard to, to as you said see outside of yourself and uh it's hard to also give away power uh to others um so i think there is a there is a bigger message i'm not intent is a hard thing but i think the the soup that we're all swimming in um is very um uh, soup skewed it is soupy and it's murky and yeah um and that influences our behavior without our knowledge of it no and i i, I, I think that's probably right um you know it's this this is a a topic that i think is very difficult for a lot of providers to to kind of realize where you know having to take a moment and reflect upon yourself and be like hey listen this is something that i can you know I, the phrase we've used is do better you know this is something that we could do better with that we're just not very good with um yeah. and it, it's something that we need to build upon and just recognize and and again i i am personally happy that over the past i mean probably 15 20 years that we're starting to become a little bit more aware of our implicit biases and you know how institutionalized racism affects damn near everything in our day-to-day lives um but i'm very happy that it's starting to to kind of come to the forefront in medicine and that we're starting to see these types of data sets and studies come out um Jamie, I, I'm I'm really excited to read this. I can't wait to see what uh, you and Remley and everybody else come out with. Uh, Remley's a friend of the show, and we're we're super happy to be to have her on a on board as well. So I am I'm very psyched to see what else you come up with. Uh, and I, I want to thank you for coming on. And I'm going to give you the last word before we sign off. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm super pleased uh, that you guys are here. That you're uh, raising the voice for things like this. Because um, I don't think it gets enough attention. Um, and any time that I can come back and, and help be the, I'm being uh, uh, found to be the race guy in EMS. So anytime I can help <laughs> kind of uh, explain racial things, uh, or at least our, our to, resident uh, racism uh, expert. social characteristics. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm happy to do it. I'm Thank very you. happy to have you on. Thanks so much for coming on. And guys, for the Overrun podcast, my name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And we will talk to you all next time.